Hello, good evening, and welcome to the TNT Show. I'm John Drummond, and I'm your host for the next 60 guaranteed exciting minutes. You know, it's been another great day for British democracy. And this is the point in the programme which I generally have some aphorism or adage about uh, the very poor quality of British democracy. Well, I have something a little bit different tonight. We learned, for example, that this week that the PM has been funneling public funds to his latest squeeze at that time. Uh, but apparently this is not newsworthy to the BBC, which is extraordinary. And I, and I want to touch upon this. There's a deep-seated rottenness in all of this that's been going on, where money is transferred to friends, associates of the ruling party. It, it seems to be that the strikes at the very nature, the very roots of democracy, because democracy in the end, as every governing uh, system is, depends upon trust. And if you lose public trust, you pretty much lost everything. So it's bad, it's bad for democracy, I would suggest to you. And I'll be saying much more about this in my column in the Sunday National. You might want to look out for it, because there is research that suggests that this deep-seated rottenness is actually rotting the very foundations of the union itself. Thanks for joining us this evening. Uh, we have a yet another great guest, as I promise you, every single week. And I'm really excited that he's able to join us tonight. Tonight, the TNT show welcomes Dr. Alan Kennedy. And we will be talking about Scottish history and what lessons it provides for the present day, for example. And as I said in my promo, if any of you managed to catch it, a wise man once said, if you don't learn from history, you're condemned to relive it. So we're going to try and avoid reliving the bits that we don't have to relive tonight with Alan's guidance. So tonight, the nation talks to Dr. Alan Kennedy. Alan, how are you coping with the pandemic? As well as can be expected, I think. I'm getting um, very sick of the sight of my four walls, um, as I suspect all of us are. Uh, but no, I mean, as, as well as anybody can hope, we, we, we trundle along and get through what we what we can um, and uh, and get over what we must. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you lecture at Dundee University. Mm -hmm. How do you cope with all of that? Do you do it all online? Is it all Zoomed? Or? Um, it, it, it is all online. It's not Zoom. We're not allowed to use Zoom. <laughs> but it's all online. Yes, we, we have been more or less banned from visiting the campus, certainly this year. Um, and there were restrictions last day in the second half of last year as well. So all of our teaching has has moved online. Certainly this semester, it's, it's since the start of the year, it's been been literally all of it, most of it last year, um, which means you have to develop new skills. You have to become a broadcaster in some ways, because rather than giving a lecture, you have to record a little podcast, which has to be engaging and has to be loaded up um, using the appropriate software. So yes, we've had to learn an entirely new set of skills um, to take all of our teaching uh, online. And the same goes for our research as well. It's very difficult to consult archives when the archives are closed and you can't get to the materials. Um, so a challenging year for people in my profession, I think, is, is a fair, <laughs> fair assessment of the situation. So tell us a bit about yourself, Alan. Where, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Yeah, um, well, I was born and grew up in Inverness. So that was a few years ago now. <laughs> we don't want to reveal my age, but yeah, I spent the, the first nearly 20 years of my life in, in Inverness. E extremely normal sort of childhood. Um, just a 
exactly what you'd expect until it time came time to go to university, um, because at that time there wasn't a, um, a fully fledged university in the Highlands, which there is now a very, a very good one now in, in the Highlands, but there wasn't back then. Uh, so I had to go elsewhere for university. I ended up at the University of Stirling, um, where I enrolled as a, in history degree. Um, I'd always known I wanted to. It's one of those things that um, one of my earliest memories about myself is that I've always enjoyed history. It was always something that I wanted to get involved in. So I did when I went to university and I stayed at Stirling for eight years to do my um, undergraduate and postgraduate degrees and finished with my, with my PhD eventually after a very long hard slog. And after that it was a case of trying to find a job. Now, most of, of your listeners probably um, won't be familiar with um, the, the horrendous ins and outs of the academic job market because there are very few jobs for uh, at all, particularly for younger scholars. So I do a lot of um, scrabbling around and, and going places. I ended up at the University of Manchester for a few years um, doing, doing a, a significant research project there uh, before I ended up where I am now, which is the University of Dundee. Um, which is, is much more convenient for uh, somebody who wants to remain in Scotland than, than Manchester was. Um, so, potted history of a very ordinary and unexciting life so far. But, but why history? Because you must have had your choice at one time. Mm. Um, it, it's odd. I mean, it, it, in one sense, I didn't have a choice because I always was, was, was sort of instinctively drawn to history. There was no way I would have sort of... Um, been happy doing it, doing anything else. But as to why history, um, I really can't answer that question. It's if I was pushed, I think the thing that that that, dra that drew me towards history, and particularly Scottish history, um, is just the richness of the stories that that it offers. There's there's so much interesting stuff going on in the, in the Scottish past, um, and I think those. The, the 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 excitement of those stories, the, the resonance, the richness of those stories, just kept pulling me back. Um, so I wish I could give a really kind of deep philosophical answer that oh, about history being so important and being you know core to my identity or what, what have you. But ultimately, it was just because it was the most interesting thing that I had found, and it remains the most interesting thing, um, uh, certainly in, in intellectual terms, um, that, that I've ever come across. When did it happen? I mean, what age were you when you said? This is it. This is for me. <laughs> Nothing else will do. Uh, I must have been very young because I, 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 I always remember wanting to, to do to do history in some way, shape, or form. Not necessarily to become a historian. I'm not sure I was aware as a child that there was such a thing as a historian who, who sort of just read history all day long and wrote it. But I think I always knew that I wanted to to be involved in in history some in some way, whether that was even just being a history teacher or you know working at a, a battlefield visitor center or something like that um but it's something that is, has always been uh, has always had an attraction to me and I'm, I'm not entirely sure i could i could i can remember a time where, where it wasn't um so again it's difficult to answer that question because it's just always been the thing that has, has grabbed me um, and continues to you said that there was a, a richness about scottish history mm. give us an example of how that richness because I mean, I guess a lot of people, historians in other countries would say the same thing. You know, my country is full of rich stories and that would be true. So mm -hmm. what is it about Scottish history in particular? Um, yeah, well, on one level, nothing in particular about Scottish history. As you say, um, all countries have um, have their own histories, often um, 
just as rich, if not richer, than than Scotland. So I wouldn't I wouldn't want to make any exceptionalist claim that the Scottish past is somehow more interesting or more exciting than anyone else's, because I don't think it is. But I think it's very sort of for very personal reasons. I found it uh, very resonant for me. I mean, as I say, I grew up in the Highlands. Um, there are relics all over the Highlands of um, of the past, particularly the 19th century past, the, um, the Highland clearances. And I think if you grow up in the Highlands with even a sort of passing interest in Scottish history, you recognise that that history is there, that it is, um, that it remains important and that people remain deeply invested in in that history. Um, and I think it's that, that sense of personal connection, which has always made Scottish history for me that much more, um, uh, that much more resonant, that much more interesting than, than other types of history. It's not because the material itself is more interesting necessarily, it's because my connection to it feels more immediate. Um, and I think that um, that is probably why, although I've, I'm always interested in other types of history, it's ultimately always the history of Scotland that, that pulls me back in. Um, and obviously it's what I've ended up doing um, as, as a career for, for those reasons. Can we talk about one aspect of, of mm. Scottish history, general history, but the Scottish uh, connection to this particular theme, because Kenny Lowe has, uh, uh, has submitted a question mm. uh, about sovereignty uh, being vested with the people of Scotland. Um, now, uh, th th there is a, a common view uh, that sovereignty in the rest of the UK is vested in the Crown and Parliament, uh -huh. but that's not the case in Scotland. What, 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 what's the background to that? What's the history of that? Mm. Um, I mean, that, that's really interesting because that's that's a, uh, a truism. Everybody tr trots that out. The, the historical background is extremely shallow. I mean, if you look at, at Scotland before 1707, so when Scotland was still independent, I don't think you would have found anybody who would seriously have claimed that sovereignty rested with the people of Scotland. Um, I mean, you'll often see the the people public opinion invoked rhetorically, um, but there's two things about that. One, it's rhetoric. It's, it's usually for for a sort of uh, purposes of 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 making a point strongly, and two, they don't mean the people as in normal ordinary Scots. They mean the elites. They mean the nobility usually. Um, sometimes the um, the representatives of the other so-called socialist states, so the, the, the clergy or, or the, the borough elites, the town elites. Um, so what you actually see, I think, in Scotland before 1707, if, if people talk about sovereignty, they probably talk about it in mostly the same way as they do in England, which is Parliament, is, is where sovereignty is vested, or the crown in Parliament. So um, I'm not a historian of, of modern Scotland, so I wouldn't like to, to speculate about the, the more recent roots of that. But what I can say is that this idea of sovereignty being popular in Scotland, vested in the people and not in institutions and not in the crown, I don't think anybody in Scotland before 1707 would have recognised that. Um, and I think it would be a mistake to assume that Scots have this unique, democratic, popular understanding of sovereignty. Um, because as far as I can see, they didn't before 1707. Now, as I say, whether that's developed more recently, whether um, the, there are 19th or 20th century roots to, um, to this idea of popular sovereignty, that that can be legitimate can legitimately be pointed to. Um, I'm I'm 
I'm not not so sure about that either, but there might be. Um, but certainly, any any thinking about in independent Scotland, it seems to me to be something of a myth, um, or 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 at, at the very least a misreading of yeah. um, of, of of the rhetoric of yeah. the time. What seems to be the case, based on what you've told us, is that the the last Scottish um, Parliament was deemed to be sovereign, effectively, up to 1707. Uh, and the whole idea of the claim of right and sovereignty to be vested with the people is perhaps more of a 20th century view, uh, which didn't apply back then. Yes. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 if I could just jump in, I think that, that you used the, the term claim of right there. That's really interesting because, of course, there are two claims of right. Um, the original one is from 1689, and it does explicitly suggest that, uh, or, or at least explicitly is the wrong word, certainly implies strongly that Parliament is sovereign. And I think you would struggle to find in the claim of right, um, except possibly for the narrow issue of how the church should be governed. But apart from that, I think you'd struggle to find any rhetoric that supports the idea that the last Scottish Parliament, uh, or the second last Scottish Parliament, or actually two after 1689, um, regarded itself, um, or regarded the people as sovereign rather than rather than itself. So claim of right is an interesting one because there are two, and we mustn't get them confused. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, we've had a question from EFS Moore, mm -hmm. and the question is, what do you, what's your, what do you think about Neil Oliver's take on the Highland clearances? Um, well, I confess I've, I, 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 I tend to avoid Neil Oliver's take, so I'm not entirely sure what his take on the Highland clearances are, or is, I should say. What I can say, um, more broadly, is that the Highland clearances is one of those episodes in Scottish history which has been um, very heavily mythologised. So a lot of people um, looking back on the Highland clearances tend to see it as almost a kind of English plot to um, to drive out Highlanders, you know, coming in and, and, and drive out the Gales and do all sorts of unspeakable things to them. Um, the Highland clearances mostly are perpetrated by on Highlanders by other Highlanders or other Scots. There's There are some examples of, of, of English landlords um, buying up land and, and being responsible for clearance, but it's not a sort of English plot or a British plot to depopulate the Highlands. It's um, something that's much more indigenous, um, also something that's linked to very wide structural issues to do with the development of of um of the british and imperial economy the development of the european economy as well particularly in the um it, while the napoleonic war is going on that, that forces a degree of um economic restructuring that has knock-on effects for for the highlands um so the other side of that of course is that there isn't a uh, there isn't a sort of um an apology uh, or an apologia for the the landlords saying that well they were they were absolutely um doing their best they were they were really sort of kind gentlemen who tried their best but ultimately couldn't stand in the way of progress i mean that too is over egged there are um it is clear that as well as these big sort of structural problems there were very clear policy issues or policy decisions made on the part of individual landlords that clearing land was in the best interests of their of their bottom line essentially um so i think there are the highland clearance is a nice example of something that i think happens a lot in in public understanding of scottish history you get these very strongly entrenched narratives um neither of which are quite right um, or quite match up perfectly with with the evidence so i think i think that's the highland clearance is an example um of how you can um 
there are different myths, both of which can be debunked to some extent uh, and leaving us with a much kind of messier reality, which which is perhaps less um, straightforward to engage with and to understand, but which I think it's important um, that we do engage with. Good point, good point. Charles Smith is asking, you're getting loads of questions tonight. <laughs> Charles Smith is saying, uh, this is interesting, actually. Are there any ancient Scottish parliamentary or official titles uh, that were lost after the union that might be worth considering reusing uh, in, in an independent Scotland? Um, well, well there, there is a sort of native terminology which does not survive 1707. Um, I mean, the most important one is that the Scottish term, the Scottish version of the term Member of Parliament was Commissioner to Parliament. So we called our MPs commissioners. Um, that's something I would have loved to have seen that taken up when the Scottish Parliament, the current Scottish Parliament was created. So rather than having MSPs, if we could have had commissioners, that would have been a lovely nod back, um, rather confusing nod back perhaps to, um, to pre-1707. But that's one example um, of, of, uh, of, of the nomenclature. Um, there are um, other institutions, offices um, in, in the pre-1707 Scottish Parliament, which we have lost. Uh, for example, the person presiding over Parliament uh, was the Chancellor. Um, the Chancellor is also the sort of formal head of the Scottish Government. Um, well, obviously the King's the head of the Scottish Government, but the the the, uh, the Chief Minister, I suppose, is the Chancellor, but he doubles up as the Chair of, of the person chairing Parliament. Um, you have a wonderful committee called the Lords of the Articles, which I think is a great uh, a great name. This is the kind. This is a um, a body which is responsible for drafting legislation um, and for uh, acting as a kind of steering committee for Parliament. Um, I'd love to see that return. Um, well, maybe I wouldn't actually because it has a rather poor reputation um, pre seventeen oh seven. But it's a nice example of of, of these um, these titles that are that are lost. Um, we also have the High Commissioner which is the king's representative in parliament after 1603 so after the king um, moves off south um so yes there are plenty of um or there, there is a kind of native tradition of of um, offices of terminology which doesn't survive 1707 um which we would maybe like to see um maybe would have nice to be nice to have seen return um when the scottish parliament returned Oh, that's a pity. I love the idea of commissioners. Yes, it's, it's a it's a it's a particularly Scottish term. It's not um, not something I don't think you see in the English parliamentary tradition. Um, but it's it's got a nice ring to it. I always think. Um, well, I, I would agree with that. I, I I mean maybe it's just me, but I find the the the, the MSP title very odd. It just somehow it sounds like a sort of sort of strange halfway house. Hmm. You're not quite a member of parliament, you're a member of this other thing. So anyway, maybe that's just me. Yeah, no, I, I, can, I can see that. And having the word commissioner would have solved that problem. But alas, we didn't do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Hashbury Stumble is asking uh, if you agree that there's not enough taught about the decline of the British Empire. But it strikes me that your specialisation is prior to the emergence of the, the British Empire. Mm. Um, yes, you're right. Although um, th th this is this kind of question, obviously, has become a really important one for historians of all stripes in the, in the last few years. Uh, I think um, 
traditionally, no, I think I think that I think that would be a reasonable point. There has not been enough um, focus on not just the decline of the British Empire, but but, but the dark side of the British Empire. I mean. Um, the British Empire is a deeply problematic institution for for lots and lots of reasons, and I think there was traditionally a tendency to um, to perhaps airbrush that out to try to 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 think of the empire as something we should all be proud of. Um, I, th I do think that this has begun to change more recently. There is um, a lot more focus in schools, particularly Scottish schools, where curriculum for excellence gives a little bit of flexibility here for pupils to explore. Um, the, the, these kind of more difficult questions about about the imperial legacy, particularly, of course, related to slavery and the slave trade, um, and that's feeding through into universities as well, where these kind of questions have been much more prominent uh, over the last generation or so than, than they had been before. Um, so I think I would agree that that uh, there has conventionally been not enough focus on this. Um, it's still a difficult topic to discuss sometimes um, and provoke strong reactions from. Uh, from people who do still feel uh, some some degree of pride in Britain's imperial history, but it's important that we are aware of these very problematic aspects of empire. And I think it is it is good that we have seen, particularly in the last couple of years, this very strong push towards openly discussing these issues because they're important issues um, and they need to be talked about. I mean, I wouldn't wish to defend the British Empire or any other empire, but I would say that. Uh, it's probably a characteristic, wouldn't you agree, of all empires that they have to behave uh, in a particular way. I mean, mm -hmm. you can't run an empire by being generous, kind and supportive. The mm -hmm. whole point of an empire is to be uh, exploitative, surely. Mm -hmm. So it's hard yeah. to say you can do that in a sort of terribly generous way. <laughs> no, you're, you're right. Imperialism um, is an inherently exploitative um, endeavour. You can't be, uh, or at least I don't think you can be, a, a, um, a sort of kind imperialist or a nice imperialist. It's it's, it's inherently a um, an exploitative, a cruel way to interact with the rest of the world. I mean, I think what makes the British Empire a little bit more difficult than, than others is partly its sheer size, um, because it is bigger than, than 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 any other empire. But also the the very strong. Um, uh, sort of issues of race that underpin it, because at every stage in its development, the British Empire is is rooted in ideas about white superiority um, and the inferiority of um, of, of people from, from of African descent, people of Asian descent. That that's how do you justify taking somebody's land away from them? You do it by characterizing them as somehow inferior to you. Um, so that's 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 core, it seems to me. Of, of the British imperial project. It's core to all imperial projects, but it's particularly, because of that racial element, it's particularly strong and particularly problematic, I think, in, in, in the British iteration um, of yeah. that. Again, but, which is why this is such a problematic issue. Yeah, and it does seem to me it's almost independent of the, the size of the imperial power. I mean, mm. you know, one thinks of Belgium and the way they, mm. the abominable way they behaved in the Congo. I mean, yeah. I mean that's a small country. Exposing yeah. a huge country. Yeah. Anyway, that's it's one of these things. Mm -hmm. Andrew Barr is asking: Is it possible to estimate when Scotland was founded? Oh, <laughs> um, getting uncomfortably outside my my comfort zone here. Um, there are colleagues at particularly University of St Andrews. I would I would direct you towards for a better answer. Um, the short answer is no. Um, there isn't a date in which you can say Scotland appears. What I think we see instead is 
a very kind of gradual process of various uh, groupings, various kingdoms and sub-kingdoms sort of coming together in a, in a messy sort of way. Um, I mean, most of us will be familiar probably with the, the, the traditional king lists where you get Kenneth MacAlpin as Kenneth the first comes to the throne, I think it's 843 is when he's supposed to have become the first king of Scots. And he had this neat line of, of kings all the way through to, to the current current queen. Um, that obviously is, is misleading. Um, so my, my my understanding of the situation is we're probably looking at um, something around about the 11th century before you can realistically talk about something that looks vaguely like Scotland. But even then, um, you've got a lot of development still to go until you get, um, if nothing else, the landmass of Scotland completely. I mean, it's not until Scotland gets its hands on the Northern Isles, um, Orkney and Shetland in the, in the 1460s and 70s, that we have most of what looks like the current landmass of Scotland under the control of, of the Scottish Crown. So it's a very long, drawn-out, messy process, and I don't think there's any point at which we can say, yep, Scotland did not exist the year before that, and it did exist that year. Um, it, it's nothing as, as neat as that, unfortunately. It would be lovely if it was. It would make our lives a lot easier, but, uh, but I don't think that's the case. Well, it would, be, it would perhaps be atypical, because I don't think you can... I suspect you can't point to any particular state or yeah. nation and say... It was definitely starting then, as opposed yeah. to. Yeah, that, that, that's a, that's a fair point. Unless you're talking about sort of uh, very recent or, or or artificial state creations, but when you're talking about old um, national communities like Scotland or England or Ireland or, or what have you, um, we are talking about lost in the mists of time territory, um, and it's, it's, there's no no getting away from that. I fear. We we talked about sovereignty and and the, mm -hmm. the view about where sovereignty is vested and how that seems to have changed over the years. Mm. Is there anything else that uh, you have come across that uh, where the, 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 the sort of common view doesn't quite square with the actuality? <laughs> We're getting into the territory of historical myths here, aren't, aren't we? Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 there, are, there are a lot of truisms about, uh, about Scottish history which don't quite hold up um, under scrutiny. I mean, um, in my period, the one that the one that I probably am um, most familiar with is is um, sort of popular understandings of the, the process of union. Um, so that at the end of the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, which I think tends to be seen as either um, uh, a sort of inexorable process of economic reality forcing the Scots in, into union, or it's seen as some kind of mendacious English plot to uh, to, to kind of capture. Um, capture Scotland. Um, as with most of these myths, there, there's elements of truth in both of those, um, both of those, but what we actually have in the process of union is, is a much kind of um, messier process that's got longer roots in Scotland than we might, we might, we might think. So, I mean, the idea of union with England um, as a proposition has roots in Scottish thinking going at least to the early 16th century. The famous humanist scholar John Mayer um, talks, is, is an advocate of union in the early 1500s. Um, and similarly, as we go through the, the late 16th century into throughout the whole of the 17th century, there are always people talking about um, union and why it would be good for Scotland. Scots talking about, uh, about this. Um, so there's a long kind of intellectual tradition there. Um, there's lots of discussion about the economic imperatives for union, um, the, the, the diplomatic and geopolitical advantages of it. Um, that underpin the kind of crisis moment that we get to at the early 18th century, which which leads to the, to the Treaty of 1706-7. Um, so that's a nice example, I think, of how we, we tend to have a rather 
simplistic view perhaps of the union process um, that doesn't square up with the messiness of, of the reality. You could say the same things about the wars of independence in the medieval period. I think most of us tend to think of this as, you know, nasty Edward I comes up um, and then up pop Wallace and Bruce and knock, knock him back again and and, and everything is, is great. Um, in actual fact, the wars of independence are much more long drawn out process, um, which outlives both Wallace and Bruce by a very, very long way. Um, and it's a, it's a, a process which is underpinned um, by effectively civil war among the Scots as well. Um, there are Scots who um, who support um, uh, independence, there are, or, or what passes for independence in the medieval period. There are Scots who support the claims of, of Edward I, II and III. There are Scots who support alternative candidates for the throne, particularly the, the Balliol family, John Balliol and Edward Balliol. But again, the wars of independence then are something where the the kind of neat narrative that a lot of us maybe are, are familiar with is is not um, it does not necessarily match up with the reality. So we were we I was just talking there about how the, the wars of independence is another example of how uh, contemporary ideas about Scottish history sometimes don't match up with the. The reality you can say that about other peers of Mary Queen of Scots we all have views about her and her reign is much more complex than we might might think the Jacobites too um and we talked about the Highland clearances as well so there's lots of these examples of um of of the, the kind of stories we tell ourselves today about Scottish history perhaps not quite matching up with the complexity um and the, and the lack of clarity of the past um because obviously the the past is just like the present it's a mess there's no clear narrative. There's no, um, you know, nice linear progression of events. It's chaos, mostly. Most of us, as we make our way through current affairs, are are, are groping in the dark and making a mess of things. And our, our ancestors were no different, I fear. But perhaps that's why we have historians. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Talking. Help us navigate this. All this stuff. Yeah, precisely. And that's actually a really interesting point because there's 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 an ongoing debate, and there has been for as long as history as a profession has existed, about um, you know what what do historians do? Um, and one of the kind of the, the core things is: do we are we responsible for imposing order on the past where it doesn't exist? Because if I decide to write a book, say on the Union. Um, well, the rationale for writing a book on the Union is I want to write the book on the Union, um, but there is obviously other stuff going on in around 1707, which is just as important to people living at the time. So, so yeah, there there is a. I don't want to get into issues about like postmodernism and all that, but there is a um, there is an interesting question there about what do historians do, and are we guilty of kind of um, giving the past a sense of cohesion that it doesn't actually have and shouldn't be and shouldn't really be looked for. Here's an interesting question, um, mm. <laughs> uh, and it probably stems from the same rationale, trying to make order out of, uh, out of what's available. Claire is asking, do you think that Mary Queen of Scots could have escaped execution if she had gone to France in 1568 instead of seeking refuge in the Tudor court? Ooh, um, that, that's an interesting. I, again, there are, there are other people I would, um, who would be better. Um, uh, position to to answer that. I mean, I suppose the the, the problem is that France at the, at the time Mary's reign comes to an end and when she's fleeing to England, um, France is descending into chaos of its own in, in in its wars of religion, which are extremely brutal and and bloody. And it's hard to see how um, a, 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 an ex queen of Scots, a queen dowager, 
of, of France sort of turning up on the shore of, of France would have been particularly welcome. Whether they would have executed her is, is unlikely. I mean, the, the, the rationale that Elizabeth I ultimately has for executing Mary of treason probably wouldn't, I, I suspect, have arisen in, 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 in a French, in a French um, uh, context. Uh, but there's all sorts of interesting questions there about would you have seen a, a re-emergence of the kind of um, Anglo-French war by proxy in Scotland that was happening in the 1540s. I mean, England and France are essentially at war in Scotland in the 1540s, at the start of Mary's reign, while she's still a child. I mean, would that have reappeared in the 1560s? I don't know. Very different context, um, with Scotland having gone through its reformation. Um, I mean, I think ultimately, though, the only way that Mary comes out of uh, the end of her reign any better than she actually did is if she regains the throne. Um, and once she'd fled Scotland, it's very difficult to see how she could have regained the throne uh, at all. Yeah, we had another question, by the way, which yeah. uh, I think you might want to take a, take a, a crack at. It's about the Alien Act. Mm -hmm. uh, Jim McIntyre, his question is, uh, do you think the Alien Act of 1704 and 1705 wasn't an aggressive act on part of Westminster? I think it was, and I, th I think it was designed to be. Um, uh, I mean, the, the Alien Act, for those who, who don't know, is a um, is essentially a threat uh, on the part of the English Parliament that unless the Scots enter union negotiations by a set date, um, any Scots living in England will be designated aliens and therefore will not be able to trade, will lose rights that they might have, might have had. Um, and that is a really big problem because there are lots of Scots operating in England, living in England, trading from England, you know, big big businesses in London trading in with, with the colonies or what have you um, that's a really big problem um, it's designed to be a um, uh, uh, a sort of uh, something to force the Scots to to uh, to come to the negotiating table over union um, I think though we have to be careful here because there's a tendency to look at the alien act and say oh well that's evidence that, that Scotland is forced into union and it's all perfidious Albion you know forcing forcing this on the Scots. We have to remember is that the Alien Act is a response, a direct response to a piece of legislation passed by the Scots earlier on in, in the Scottish Parliament, the so-called Act of Security, um, which is uh, in which the Scots say basically um, we, were, we are not going to allow Queen Anne's successor to be the same person as succeeds to the throne of England. Um, the English had just designated Sophia of Hanover, the mother of George I, as he later becomes, as Queen Anne's heir, the Scots, through the Act of Security, say, "Well, we're not going to um, we're not going to accept her um, unless various conditions are, are met." Um, the point about that is that's an extraordinarily provocative act on the part of the Scots because of the wider context. It's England and Scotland are both involved in the War of the Spanish Succession at this point. You know, really big conflict that is is becomes a kind of existential conflict for many many European states including Queen Anne's realms um, so the Scots threatening this the the, 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 the not to accept a um, uh, Sophia as successor is a really big security concern for uh, for England the Scots know it is and that's why they they do it because their hope is that they can you know um, get get uh, an improved union um, out of out of this, of course, it's a, they overplay their hand. The the the, the Alien Act um, turns out to be enough, I think, to wake an awful lot, wake most of not most Scots, but a lot of Scots up to the fact that actually they are negotiating with a stronger partner here, um, and at a point of 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 security crisis, 
that become that means that you know the Scots pretty much have to um, get on the on 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 the same page as the the English government. Um, so yes, going back to the question, the, the Alien Act is designed to be perhaps hostile is not the right but right, right but certainly it's playing hardball. Um, but a there are reasons for that, and b the Scots had had been playing hardball as well. So it's it's not it's not as you know poor poor innocent Scotland being beaten over the head by a nasty English bully. It's it's not that sort of situation. I think. Got it. Yeah. And you mentioned that there had been various attempts at union prior to seventeen oh seven. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Um. I mean, Scott. As I said, mentioned Scots had been talking about union. Um. As as a, as an abstract thing for for well over a century, um, two centuries even since, uh, if not more than that, by the time it comes about. But ever since James VI became King of England in 1603, succeeding Elizabeth I and, and becoming the first, what he calls himself, the King of Great Britain, and although he's legally still King of England and King of Scotland, Great Britain doesn't exist yet, except in James's imagination, but nonetheless. Um, but ever since that point, there had been um, various sort of programmes for tying England and Scotland closer together. I mean, James himself, his first order of business after after rocking up in London is, is to push this idea of, of what he calls a more perfect union. So he wants to try and merge England and Scotland into one um, one one uh, state. I, th I think the, the metaphor he uses at one point is he wants to, um, to conceptualise England and Scotland as two streams which flow together to form a new river. So they completely intermingle into a new British kingdom. Um, what he's talking about there is an incorporating union, and that's what sort of happens in 1707, not quite as perfectly as James would have, would have wanted, but um, but that's one sort of programme that emerges very early on. But as we go through the 17th century, we get other um, uh, sort of attempts or ideas about union that emerge. I mean, the most obvious one after James's programme is the Covenanters in the six, late 1630s and into the 1640s, um, for whom the... the who want closer union between England and Scotland. They see this as crucial to um, the security of Scotland, but also the security of, of their revolution. Covenanters pushed through a really substantial revolution at the end of the 1630s. Um, what they talk about, though, is confederal union. Um, and this is um, it is a bit vague, but it essentially means England and Scotland cooperating in some way as equals. So it, it, rather than you know merging into one state they, they, they could very well stay completely distinct but there'll be some way of, of coordination cooperation on equal footing um i mean the problem with that is you well you can probably guess the problem what's the attraction for england i mean england is much bigger much richer much more powerful than scotland why would they want to to have this equal relationship um so as soon as the english civil war comes to an end and england is a bit more stable this notion of confederal union falls very much out of out of favour, although Scottish Covenanters often continue to push it as an ideal um, solution. Um, after that, we get obviously the Cromwellian conquest at the start of the 1650s introduces a new model of union, which is essentially Scottish absorption into England uh, at, the, at the point of a sword. Uh, problem with that is, A, the Scots don't like it for obvious reasons, and B, it's extremely expensive from England's point of view. You only hold a conquered nation. Uh, using military muscle uh, and that's expensive so 
and a, a sort of coercive absorption view, a, a union based on absorption is also problematic. Later than that, even in, into the 1660s and 1670s, we get the, the emergence of programmes for commercial union under Charles II. There are actually negotiations right at the end of the 16, um, 1660s uh, to try and work, a, work out a commercial union between England and Scotland, where they will remain politically separate, but will have um, uh, some form of, of kind of free trading arrangement almost across uh, across the British Isles. Um, that again comes to nothing because nobody's particularly keen. It's neither the Scots nor English commissioners who are appointed particularly like the idea. Um, but it, what that means then, in a period of only about 70 years, we've had at least four different models of union that have been, that have emerged, that have been discussed, that might have been actually tried out at various points before we even get to the, the, the process of, of actually creating the Treaty of Union that emerges in Queen Anne's reign. Um, and I think that underlines the fact that union is not, for, from the Scots point of view, union is not an event that comes out of the blue at the start of the 18th century. It's, a, it's something that had been absolutely central to Scottish politics, to Scottish ideas about self-identity, um, to Scottish political philosophy, um, to economic philosophy even for decades, if not centuries. Um, and I think that's something we often forget. We, we, we tend to think of, of the Union as something that happens at a particular point um, in Queen Anne's reign. Actually, it's much longer term um, and much more longer gestating than that. It's interesting you say all of that because I detect, particularly amongst those who um, don't favour separation, that they, they, they seem to be coming around to a view that a non-incorporated union would be ideal. Mm. Um, how that would work uh, <laughs> would be fascinating because yeah. you just explained why <laughs> nobody back then believed it would work. Mm. So it's difficult to see how it would actually work now. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, I, th I think. I mean, uh, I'm obviously not qualified to talk on current constitutional issues, but what I can say um, is that people in the 17th century recognised that. Um, that any form of union has problems and is going to be complicated, particularly when you're dealing as you were, as you are now and as you were in the 17th century with one much more powerful partner, much bigger and richer partner and one much smaller and much weaker one. Um, how you, um, you come up with institutions, structures that please both those parties is I think a really difficult, um, a difficult question. I mean, the way it works in, the way they get around that in 1707 essentially is an incorporating union that actually leaves a lot of, of Scottish civic identity in place um, and then a sort of almost a century of more or less benign neglect on the part of, of the UK government after 1707. There's not much um, interest in sort of getting involved in, in, in Scottish affairs. So you end up with this weird situation where you have an incorporating union in the 18th century but also a sort of de facto form of home rule um, which works because most people in England don't really care very much. Um, I think I'd, I'm not sure I detect that same level of, of not caring in current politics. So I'm not sure that that model would necessarily translate very well to the 21st century. Um, but it's it's just interesting to reflect well, that. No, the, 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 poll, the, the polls would suggest otherwise. <laughs> and if, if, if people south of the border are positive with the choice, do you want to leave the EU uh, or uh, and if that, if that resulted in Scotland leaving, how would you feel? And they said, let's leave the EU. Um, mm. you know, it's, it's, it seems to be fairly clear cut. Mm. Um, mm. A number of people are asking,
what's your own take on independence? Are you in favor or against it? <laughs> um, I, again, I, I can speak about this personally, not not professionally. I'm, I'm a historian, not a political scientist. I mean, I uh, I do support Scottish independence. Um, I have done for, for, for quite some time, um, largely on the grounds that uh, I think Scotland constitutes a sort of natural unit. And it makes sense to me that um, that... that the government of Scotland should be at the level of, of, of Scotland um, rather than, uh, I think the UK um, level doesn't really make sense. I think, I think it's sort of Scottish independence feels much more natural, much more sensible. Um, but again, that is, that is a sort of personal political opinion. That's not rooted in a sort of deep reading of the history because I don't think, um, and this is a mistake I think is often, is often made, I don't think you can, um, you can, extrapolate contemporary solutions directly from reflecting on, on history. I think what you can do is you can discuss, well, how did we get to this point? Um, what are the, the issues that have led us to the situation we are now? But the past is not a guide to the future. The, the, the past contextualizes the present, but it doesn't give you a roadmap to the future. So when I say that I am in favour of, of, of independence and I would vote yes in another referendum, as I voted yes in, in the previous one, um, that is not necessarily, well, it might be subconsciously based on my uh, historical work, but it's certainly not consciously built on a sort of uh, a coherent theory that you know the the, the the whole the entirety of Scottish history means that we must be independent. It's, it's nothing as as, as as functional as that. Um, but oddly, I'm 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 um, uh, I'm intrigued that um, most of your the, the listeners asking that question clearly couldn't tell from my previous answers which way I would have voted. I, I suppose I'll take that as a, a as as a good thing. <laughs> I didn't give myself away. Well, I, I think you have to take it as a positive um, because uh, you, you, you're paid to be objective. And, uh, as much as possible, really anyway. Itself. <laughs> so now, now that we've sort of segued away a little bit from uh, Scottish history, then looking at the present situation and mm -hmm. you've told us your views, what's your take on the, uh, the run-up to the May 6th election? Because the SNP, which is the main independence party, seems to be all over the lot. There's, mm. there's salmon, there's sturgeon, there's a whole mm. bunch of alba. I mean, what's your take on all of that? Um, well, partly my take is, uh, and I, I, I kind of wish as a, I was a historian living 200 years from now and working on this period, because I think there's so much interesting stuff going on that if you were a historian working on early 21st century Scotland, it would be absolutely fascinating. Um, and I think you're right, the kind of the the current psychodrama that we seem to have um, over um, the direction of the independence movement is, is, is really, really interesting. Um, so that's, the, if you like, the kind of, um, you know, sober academic answer that it's fascinating and it'd be, it'd be worth worth studying um i mean my own personal view is that um it's slightly embarrassing perhaps that we seem to have um got ourselves into this messy situation where the the tenor of the debate is very um bitter um there seems to be a lot of of um of, of sort of shallow personality stuff driving a lot of our politics at the moment um which I think is perhaps not terribly attractive. Um, and it does mean that this this election is feels odd. Um, the, the kind of 
or to me it does anyway, that the kind of um, questions we're having to ask ourselves and the kind of events we're seeing play out are very strange. It's, it's very, vaguely Shakespearean in some ways. Um, uh, so, so yeah, it's it's it's, it's weird, <laughs> and it's it's um, it, it's fascinating at the same time. I mean, some people might argue it's it's a positive development, uh, you know, in the sense that for a lot of people, elections are just plain boring mm. because they're not interested in politics. They don't pay any regard to the news. When it, I mean, politics comes on the news, they switch off, and they mm. probably adhere to the general, um, slightly sort of. Um, um, interesting view that politics is show business for ugly people. You know, that, that, it's that sort of, <laughs> yeah, that sort of distance from it. Mm -hmm. um, that, 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 uh, and this enlivens that. For, for mm -hmm. folks like that, this is great because it, it gives them something to chew on mm -hmm. that, isn't, that they can connect to. Personalities. Yeah. Go, oh, we've all got that. We've all got that. And this allows me to connect to this stuff that I regarded as somewhat ethereal and mm. over there somewhere. Now it's immediate. I can connect to that. Uh, yeah, I suppose if, if, if you like politics as soap opera, then this, this election is, is is great for that. I mean, I think my, my response would be that um, I don't think anybody could seriously claim that Scottish politics has been boring for the last few years, even before this this election. I think we've, um, it, it, basically, if you found Scottish politics in the 2010s boring, then you're always going to find politics boring no matter what happens, because there's been, there's already um, been, been so much happening. Um, I mean, I think the other problem is that, um, or for me, and again, this is an entirely personal view, I think we have to reflect on whether the kinds of personalities that we are seeing becoming prominent in this election are the sorts of personalities we want to be prominent. There seems to me a lot of quite ugly emotion um, and um, uh, other unpleasant things knocking around and driving some of our politics at the moment. And, and I'm not sure that the entertainment value of that is sort of sufficient compensation for the um, uh, for the. the the rather sort of retrograde feel of, of, of a lot of this, this psychodrama. Um, yeah. So that, that would be my, again, entirely personal and unscientific take on this. No, I, think, I think that's a reasonable point. I, I think though perhaps some of this is driven by the dumbing down that's taken a place, not just in politics, but across the, across the, the whole spectrum uh, of public life. You know, because mm. it's, and to some extent, I think the media have to shoulder some responsibility for this. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, you know, it, it, it has to be a sound bite. Uh, that encourages in, in response political parties and individuals to use sound bites because they know that's what's going to get, they know they're only going to get 30 seconds. <laughs> so what they do is they try and reduce that 30 second, that major uh, political perspective into in two thirty seconds, or maybe a minute or two, because they know the broadcaster's not going to use any more than that, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe we're, we're badly served uh, by the media in that regard. I want to take you back, if I may, because we're running out of time. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, Kenny Lowe is asking. This is a really good question. If you could rewrite one chapter of history, if you could rewrite one chapter of history, what would it be? Oh goodness me! Um, well. I mean, there's lots. Uh, there's lots of uh, unpleasant stuff that happened in in Scottish history. I think one thing that's worth that, that 
that I think a lot of us would like to see rewritten, and it's something that there is a campaign about at the moment, is the history of, of um, witch hunting in Scotland. Um, Scotland, as I'm sure you're, you're, a lot of your listeners know, is unusually um, keen on witch hunting. We have a, um, a rather more um, intense and extensive witch hunt um, in, in Scotland than in most other countries, certainly more so than England. I mean, I think England executes about 500 people for witchcraft overall. We execute something like two and a half thousand. So, you know, that's in absolute terms. If you think about proportionally in terms of population, the Scottish witch hunt is, is one of the most intense in, in Europe. So I think one thing that would be nice to see excised from Scottish history is is that, because that is um, that is something that leads to the... the um, traumatic deaths of many thousands of, of innocent people, predominantly women, of course, who, for whom witch hunting is, is a very powerful tool of, of oppression and, and of marginalisation. Um, so I think it'd be nice to see that got out of the way. Um, similarly, and I'm going to abuse um, my position here and give you a second thing I'd like to see excised. Um, I think Scotland's involvement in slavery and the slave trade would be something we'd very much like to, um, to see removed from our national story because Again, this is something that um, Scots are very deeply involved in, um, that in some ways underpins the, the rejuvenation of Scotland in the 18th century. Um, and it's, it's something that we can not look back on proudly, I think. So again, it'd be nice to see these, these forms of, of exploitation and subjugation of marginalised groups. It'd be nice if we could see them uh, removed from Scotland's story. But then again, if we did that, it wouldn't be Scotland's story anymore. So, so perhaps not. Yeah, it's probably true to say as well that every every nation or every state has dark periods in its, mm. in its background that it would wish it weren't there. Uh, I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that almost all the European states and many African states too were involved in slavery. So, you know, it's... it's they, they were, but I I'm think not, there's a tendency... I, I was just going to say there that there's a, there's a tendency to to say well because of that therefore Britain was not as bad as was just as bad as everyone else. Actually, I think there's a very strong argument that Britain Britain was worse um, uh, in in terms of the sheer extent to which we exploited the slave system. I think there is there is a strong argument that, that Britain is a world leader in this particular form of vice, uh, and Scotland does not just come along for the ride. Scotland is very actively involved throughout the 18th and early 19th centuries. Yeah. Here's a question from Thomas MacArthur. Uh, he's asking, do you think that Scottish politics taught at school covers what you would like to see covered? Um, Scottish politics or, or Scottish history? Yeah, yeah Scottish um, history and politics. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, uh, obviously, everybody who specialises in a certain area wants to see more of it taught at, at schools. Um, I mean, my, my, my main concern, I think, is that... Um, what I want to see pupils developing um, is the ability to engage critically with sources, with um, uh, material that they read, with material that they watch. Um, so I'm not I'm not so interested in saying that we 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 must teach people X, Y, and Z about Scotland's national story. If they want to find out about that, they can. What I am much more interested in doing is giving people the kind of critical capacity to you know if they're scrolling on Facebook. Um, they need to be able to be nice if they could spot fake news um, and sort of critically engage with it and think, is, is this actually plausible? Is this um, persuasive as, as, a, as a piece of writing? Um, so I'm not sure I would, I, would, I would want to prescribe particular 
topics or information to be delivered. I mean, we live in an age when information is very easily accessible. It's more the critical skills that I want to see us developing in schools and and indeed universities and colleges too. Um, And so if we can do that by using Scottish history, fantastic. But if it's done using other types of history, other national stories, again, fantastic. So long as we develop the the skills, um, that's what, what matters to me. Good point, Alan. If people watching and listening tonight want to know more about what you're doing, how, how can they do that? Do you have a website? Do you, do you, how do, can people get in touch and tap into this knowledge? Well, well there's two ways. Um, first of all, you can find me on the University of Dundee's web pages. Um, uh, if all else fails, just put my name into Google and I, and I should pop up on the, my, my staff page should pop up, which will tell you about my teaching and research. The other thing to bear in mind is that I work with a, a magazine called History Scotland. I'm a consultant editor of that magazine, um, which comes out every second month, um, bringing kind of up to date historical research for for a general public. So if you wanted to subscribe to that magazine, you could get you could see what I'm up to. But equally, they have a website, historyscotland.com where you'll see a lot of of, um, of information resources about Scottish history, um, including bits and pieces that I've contributed to them. So that's the two most obvious ways of finding out more about me is through my institutional webpage, uh, which will link also to pr- various projects that I'm involved in and, and research centres, um, but also through History Scotland, which is my second sort of professional hat that I wear as well as, 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 well as Dundee. Um, so if, any, if anybody is, um, is wanting to learn Excellent. more, that's how they do it. There you are, folks. There's the place to go. You've got all the details. Uh, a big, big thank you, Alan, for being our guest tonight. Uh, I've certainly learned a lot, and I suspect those watching and listening uh, have done so too. So a big thank you to you, and a big thank you to everyone watching tonight. I need to say to you, though, that do look out for the column in the, in the Sunday National this weekend, because I think you're going to enjoy it. There's going to be some fascinating facts there that you may not have come across elsewhere. Uh, by the way, next week's guest is Jim Fairley, who's standing for Kinrosshire and South Persia uh, in the Scottish parliamentary elections that are coming up on May the 6th. And so we'll hear from, from Jim next week, and I'm very much looking forward to that. If you want to know what's happening on Indie Live, who's coming up on the, the TNT show uh, in the, the weeks and months to come, you'll see it on the What's On Guide. You go there, you'll see all the details. Uh, thank you for your support. Big thank you to Alan. Big thank you to the folks behind the scenes. And thank you again. And please join us next Wednesday at the same time when we'll, our guest will be Jim Fairley. Take care. Good night. And remember, it's been a great day for British democracy. Good night, everyone. Take care. Stay safe.